Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. I just spoke with Jonathan about his recent book, Sensuous Surfaces, The Decorative Object in Early Modern China. This was published in 2010 with the University of Hawaii Press. The book is very specific about being situated in a very particular time in a very particular place. So the book looks at the context of late Ming through early and mid-Qing China, And it's specifically focused on understanding the experiences of, knowledge of, discourse about decorative objects in interiors in urban China within that period. So it's it's of obvious interest to anybody who is interested in, who typically reads books about art history and or China and or China in this period. But beyond that, this is a book that rewards readers who don't typically think of themselves as being interested in these categories, China, art history, art history of China. And the reason for this is that Hay is taking a very very original, a very vibrant approach to the kind of work that he's doing in this book that really opens up the subject, opens up the topic into a kind of toolbox or a set of methodological resources that a reader coming to this from any kind of background, really from any discipline or from no discipline at all, can take away and inform their own experiences of decorative objects in their own environments and certainly can inform the way they're thinking with, writing with, reading with things, objects, materials, and ways of thinking embodiment in their own work. So it's a very rich book. It's a very exciting book. And I learned a lot, not just from reading this, and I teach with this book. And so I'm a big, big fan of this book. I also learned a lot from listening to Jonathan talk about his own perspectives about the book, his perspectives about the kind of ways that this particular book speaks to a larger set of resources, both in the field and beyond. So I really, really enjoyed this one. I hope that you enjoy it even a fraction um, as much as I did, because uh, this was a particular pleasure. I learned a lot, and I hope you do as well. Thanks for listening. We're here today to talk with Jonathan Hay about his book, Sensuous Surfaces, the Decorative Object in Early Modern China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Jonathan, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. It's my pleasure. So, Jonathan, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background, as is traditional for New Books in East Asian Studies? How did you come to the field of the history of art in early modern China? Well, I... Um, was born into an art family, you might say. My my father was a painter by training. Then he became a, a, a high school art teacher. Then later on was an antique dealer. My godfather was a painter. A lot of uh, artists have a, a strong interest in non-Western culture. And my father had a, a collecting mentality, so there were a lot of Chinese objects uh, at home. And my mother's father also had a, a big interest in, in, in non-Western culture. 
So I grew up in a family that was very open to all of that. But on a personal level, I just wanted to get out of Scotland. You know, Scotland's a wonderful place, but it's small as well, and I wanted to see the world. And I don't know if you know the the British education system, at least the British education system in the 1970s, where you had to... Um, decide the course of your life at the age of 17. Um, So I knew I wanted to work with art. My father had told me that I didn't have enough talent to go to art school and be an artist. Um, But he said, you know, you might try art history because I think I've taught you how to look at art and talk about art. And I found, I, I have to admit that I found the, the, the study of Western art, anything that I read about the study of Western art, to be a little fusty. Um, and I was more attracted by non-Western art. I originally wanted to do African art, but uh, that wasn't possible at the undergraduate level. My second choice was Japanese. That wasn't possible either. But you could do Chinese art and archaeology at SOAS in London, so I applied for that and got accepted. Well, um, so the book that we're talking about today does a lot of different kinds of work, and we'll explore at least some of those kinds of work over the course of our conversation, but at least um, to situate it very generally in terms of topic for listeners who may not yet be familiar with the book or have had an opportunity to read it. And it's, I'll say right from the outset, I, I love this book. I've taught with this book. It's a totally beautiful book, and I'm really excited um, to talk with you about it. But it's a study of domestically produced portable decorative arts for use in the late Ming and early to mid-Qing China, or early modern China. And um, we can talk, if you'd like, later on about um, issues of, you know, do we say early modern, do we say um, late Ming or uh, early to mid-Qing or whatever, but I think I just want to signal for listeners that you're very clear in this book that temporality is not an either-or, that this is a kind of multiple approach that we can bring to the study of a particular time and place. And so I'm just going to throw out Ming and Qing and early modern as um, handholds for listeners to grasp onto and trying to situate this within a larger discourse, but really it's about all and and, um, not either one of these specifically, but all of them as much as you'd like. Okay, so that's what the book is about, at least in its most general sense, and we'll talk about the particularities um, as we talk further. How did you come to work on this particular set of issues? What brought you uh, to this topic of the book within the larger trajectory of work that you've done prior to this and your larger trajectory of interests? Well, it has a lot to do with having trained in Europe and having trained in in Britain initially. I came to Chinese art through the decorative arts. Um, That's what I first saw when I was at home. Uh, There were Chinese ceramics around the house and a few other decorative objects as well. My my father had a broken uh, rhinoceros horn libation cup, for example, things, things like that. And as an undergraduate, I was in a program that um, studied the the broad range of Chinese art and and archaeology. And it was a program that was led by two people, um, William Watson and Margaret Medley, um, with Watson, the the, the main person. Now, Watson had come to SOAS from the British Museum. So he was really, he was at once... uh, uh, somebody with a museological 
training and uh, an archaeologist. And Medley was uh, the, the curator of the Percival David Foundation of Chinese Art and very much on the museum side, side of things. Um, in Britain, um, because of the nature of the collections, and this is true uh, or was true pretty much all over Europe, painting... Was, painting and calligraphy were not given the privileged status um, in the study of Chinese art that they had at that time in the 70s and 80s in the United States. So my initial training uh, reinforced this interest in objects. Um, I, you know, we had a you know a part of our training was specifically focused on ceramics, for example. So. I started out with uh, a training in, in in objects, and then I went to China for a couple of years, and uh, there there again had a, a broad training. But when I went to the United States, it was to focus uh, to focus on painting, and. I was very struck in in, in arriving in the United States that. Painting and calligraphy were were studied in isolation from the larger visual environment. As a European, this didn't this didn't make much sense to me. And as somebody who had lived in China and uh, and and studied Chinese art with professors who uh, like Bo Nian, who had been insistent on the the uh, continuities between different areas or among different areas of. Uh, Chinese visual culture, uh, this this did seem odd, and and so from the beginning of my publishing career, that starts around the, the end of the 1980s, I've tried to weave painting back into the visual environment, but I also felt that decorative arts was for me personally was a little bit of unfinished business. Um, I wanted to uh, go back to that and see whether it was possible to to study it in a in a different way from the way that the specialists study it. Uh, so the book is in a in a sense a kind of reaction against um, the specialist literature, which is uh, rather celebratory and uh, taxonomic at the same time. Um, I, I wanted to integrate it into intellectual history, into the larger history of art, and, and, and so on, um, as well as uh, continuing my project of weaving painting into the visual environment. You'll have noticed that there are lots and lots of paintings uh, illustrated in the book, and uh, it's one of my beliefs that paintings... Uh, situationally uh, operate decoratively, even if they're very, very serious paintings. Um, I was also, I also wrote the book in, uh, this is something quite different. By the time I wrote it, uh, there was a, a great interest in Sinology in general and in Chinese art history in particular in writing about the history of consumption and uh, in approaching art objects from and images from the point of view of the history of consumption. 
And I was reacting against that as well because I felt that in the process, the, 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 the specificity of this kind of art was getting lost from view. Mm-hmm. One of the really notable, one of the many really notable things about the book is how much, um, and now we'll, we'll go into the body of the book itself and really the, it really explored us as a body and I'm using that language very deliberately because so much of this book and the experience of reading the book touches the body and is about embodiment on so many different levels, at least for me um, as one possible reader. This is very different from other kinds of art history books that readers who are familiar with the discourses and literatures of um, art history of China, but also of other kinds of art history may be familiar with. It's much more resonant with the kinds of themes and the kinds of concerns that readers who come to this book with an interest in objects, in bodies, in sort of networks of, uh, of experience and networks of lives are going to recognize from that kind of literature. So it's very exciting as an approach to perhaps a transdisciplinary, perhaps an adisciplinary, but really an emergent way of thinking about objects and decorative objects especially from the perspective of experience and of the experience of them and the experience of the reader who is taking um, this that you're giving us in the book and then hopefully bringing it out into their own lives and contextualizing it more widely. So the book has a number of different levels of argument, and we'll work through these um, in time. We'll work through these um, as we work through the parts of the book, but I'll just lay them, I'll lay some of them out right at the beginning for listeners who, again, may not have had an opportunity to read the book yet. You talk about, and I think, um, and this is, I'm going to quote you on um, from the beginning of the book here because I just want to lay this out in your own language at first. Um, the sensuous surfaces, so, um, and, and listeners really pay attention to these words because they're very carefully chosen and very important. The sensuous surfaces of luxury objects simultaneously embody metaphoric and affective potential. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means, metaphoric and affective potential. This potential actualizes itself through our pleasurable experience of the object. And so some notable themes come up right at the beginning that we're going to follow through um, and the course of our conversation and that really follow through in the book. The importance of the experience of the object, the importance of the life of the object as sort of coming into being through a dialogue with a person experiencing that object, the importance of pleasure, the importance of luxury, the importance of, at the same time, metaphor and affect, and the importance of potential, the sense of constantly being in motion, constantly moving, um, constant flux that these decorative objects really enable um, when put into a circumstance in which viewers could interact with them and live with them and move um, with them and around them. You, another part of the argument that you lay out at the beginning is that objects can be said to have the capacity for thinking materially. And so I'm sure... Or thinking with. Thinking, yes. Um, so I think... Exactly. And, and you, you, I think you say at the beginning, thinking materially, but the kind of thinking that they do is very different from the kind of thinking that we do, right? And I think the, um, the at least for me... And I'll, and I'll be very brief about this. Um, the, the most productive way right into this issue, as I read this, is not to say we need to define objects as being like people, but rather to 
look at ways that all experience, lived experience of all objects, depends on these kinds of relations and connections and um, why take non-human objects out of that. Um, and then... Carla, could, uh, since you brought up the word experience several yes. times, could I uh, mention one thing right at the beginning? That, yes, that, go for it. I love it. So... One of the one of the things that makes this book a little bit different from other art history books is that it's intended to be a manual. Most art history books are not. The most art history books are commentaries or exegeses of, of one kind or another. They they take an artwork or a body of artworks, they objectify those artworks in the text in order to interpret them. But I didn't want to write a, a, an interpretation or to do work of interpretation of that kind. I wanted instead to uh, reconstruct some unwritten rules of decoration within within which not just the producers but also the, the consumers were working. And I wanted to contextualize those rules. I wanted to um, uh, explain them as far as I could. Now, it's not the first art history book of this kind um, because there's a, a very famous example in a different field. I wasn't actually thinking of it uh, explicitly when I wrote this one, but it's certainly a book that I, I read when I was young and was quite influenced by then, so it's no doubt influential on this. It's a book by Michael Baxendall entitled Painting and the Experience in 15th Century Italy. And Baxendall's book wasn't an end in itself. I mean, like this one, the, the purpose of his book was achieved when the, the reader went back to the paintings, and in this case, when the reader goes back to the, the decorative objects. So this is actually a, a great place to get into um, one of the really interesting things about this, which is influences. So in addition to Baxendall, were there any other major ways that, or major influences that shaped the way you approached putting together this book, both in terms of the kind of work you were trying to do with it, but also in terms specifically of conceptualizing it as a manual? Um, not within art history, I don't think. Um, oh, but I'm actually especially interested in those influences that are beyond art history. Beyond art history, yeah. Um, well, at the time that I wrote the book, I was coming out of a long period of being very involved with systems theory, uh, German systems theory, and particularly the systems theory of Nicholas Luhmann. Um, and so I was interested in systems in, in, in general. Uh, and I've always been a great admirer of Foucault's writing and that kind of deep structural uh, work where you where you attempt to identify um, the uh, the coordinates of a of, a, of an episteme, um, a horizon of thinking for a particular period, and so that's definitely in play as well. Uh, I've also I'm I'm generally interested in relational thinking and in shifting my discipline as far as I can toward. Uh, a, a relational understanding of, of, of art and I do a lot of um, reading in that area among philosophers and theoreticians the, the, the writer who um, 
comes up several times in uh, the notes, I suppose, or whose influence is uh, felt rather explicitly is Brian Masumi. But that's particularly with regard to affect. Um, so that's a, a more specific kind of uh, influence. And once we um, get into, once we get a little bit further into the argument, I will, I'll ask you actually to talk a little bit more about Masumi and his ideas of meso-perception, because that seems to be really fundamental um, to what's happening here. So as we think about the, the body of the book and the chapters that you've given us here, can you talk a little bit about, um, because you've just mentioned the importance of thinking about structure and deep structure in particular, how did conceptualizing this book as a manual shape the way you thought about the structure of the book? So can you talk a little bit about, uh, because it is structured very differently um, than some other art history books, perhaps than many other <laughs> art history books. So can you speak a little bit to that? How did your goals shape the way you decided to put the book together in terms of its, its own structure? Well, for me, writing any book is principally, uh, the most difficult part of it is, is defining the structure. <laughs> so in this case, um, there were a number of tasks that had to be carried out, if you like. I had to explain the the, uh, the 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 basic theory involved um, I had to contextualize it I had to systematically demonstrate some of the the principles if you wish um, and what it entails and I, I'd like to answer your question in a, in an oblique way sure. what I found was that I, I could not construct a book that was written in a single mode, um, a single mode of address, if you like, that addressed the reader in, in, uh, on one register, if you like. I found that I, I needed to do so many different things in the book that I needed multiple modes of writing. And that uh, meant that from the beginning, I I just had to reconcile myself to the idea that the the poor reader was going to have to um, switch gears, if you like, in reading, and was going to have to be very active, very participatory. Um, some readers would would will find that um, you know quite uh, quite arduous, um, but I just couldn't think of another way round the problem. So I, to get to the structure itself, um, it's in three parts. The first part um, sets the scene. The second part uh, deals with the object itself, single objects. And the third part takes the argument from single objects to their combination in uh, interior decoration, particular landscapes of objects, what I call objectscapes. And at the very end of the book, I, in the final chapter, I come back to the, the theoretical argument that I had um, made as part of setting the scene at the beginning. The whole thing was very awkward. Uh, to be honest with you, it really was very awkward because um, although I might want to talk about 
the the subject of sensuous surfaces and the the uh, the topic of surface, the idea of of uh, thinking as an object, as a topography of sensuous surfaces, and as a surface scape in my language the the fact is that people need to know something about what these objects are where they're produced um, uh, some of the the the, the social conventions that are involved, and so the book had to had to start with a discussion of decoration in those terms, which really means in the the terms of luxury, um, and only then could I get on to discussing uh, the idea of the, the the surface scape. So there's already a big sort of change of gears between chapter one and uh, chapters two and three, which form the, 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 the first part of the book. Um, but I couldn't think of any other way of, of doing it. The second chapter was the one where I laid out the basic approach and the, um, well, the, the, the second and third chapters uh, together the second chapter being a little bit more theoretical than the third the the third um going into uh chinese terminology so then from there um having established the terms of the argument the second part tries to um systematically draw out its implications for individual objects and it does so across the concept of resources shared resources, uh, shared in the sense that these are resources, conceptual resources that could be drawn on by artisans working with very different materials. Um, And so we go through how many chapters? Chapters 4 to chapter 10. Mm -hmm. And then in the third chapter, from surface scapes to object scapes, we move into interior decoration. And there are three chapters there that... That, that deal with um, different aspects of interior decoration uh, before I come back to the, the theoretical problem of pleasure at, at, at the end of the book. It's a little bit of a, how could I put it? Um, because, I'm, I, because I'm trying to deal with different uh, levels of problem, there's no elegant, way to do this um, and there is no way to construct a book that will allow the or there was no way to construct a book that would allow the viewer to do the usual thing of uh, you know lay, leaning back in the armchair and uh, be taken on a, a nice ride in an automatic car on cruise control with the same register of writing throughout well but by the same token, though, and this should be mentioned, the um, and you know this may come up later on when we talk about modes of perceiving objects. It is a very pleasurable experience to read the book. It's quite beautiful, and you, if you've incorporated images not merely as illustration, but images as really what seemed to me, and a lot of images, very beautiful images. Although you know we can talk about the use of that word beauty, and you do at the end of the book, and whether it's appropriate here, but images that are very evocative and that really force the reader and encourage the reader to veer 
into different um, side paths, into different ways into the material by engaging with a reading of these images as part of the experience of engaging with the argument of the book and the narrative of the book. So I do think there's a lot of pleasure involved in the book. And well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you feel that way. I mean, that was very considered, as you can imagine. Yes. You know, I, I, part of making a manual was to include long captions. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the, the captions were intended to, to, to draw people's attention to, to, to features of the, the objects illustrated that they might otherwise miss. I also wanted to I, – I, there's a lot of cross-referencing in the text because I do think that uh, objects are overdetermined. You, know, you can't just put them in one box, and so one needs to uh, come back to them. And the cross-referencing, which the which the publishers were would have liked me to um, cut down on, uh, is something that I insisted on. Well, this actually, the, your discussion also of the kind of narrative voice and what you you pose as a challenge of reconciling different kinds of narrative voice, if I can paraphrase in the book, it actually leads me to one of the really interesting arguments and aspects of this first part of the book. In some ways, a sympathetic reader, um, and I think I I fall into that category here, um, might counter the a critique of this as uh, you know, as difficult or challenging in an unreasonable way with the uh, suggestion, and I'll just suggest this here, that it's inherent to the argument of the book that it needs to involve the reader in a kind of motion and a kind of movement that wakes the reader up and forces the reader into a kind of flux, because that's precisely the kind of generative uh, process that you're describing in the book itself. And so in a way, writing in one coherent, comfortable, narrative, relaxing, more familiar voice would actually undermine the kind of argument that you're making in the book in the way that this choice um, really doesn't. Um, So I think actually that works really well, and it brings us to one of the major arguments that emerges out of this part of the book, as long as we're on this topic, and that's the importance of movement in understanding these objects in context and in the particular context that you're talking about. So after setting up in this background chapter the three systems of taste that are relevant to the study, including a kind of late Ming fashionable showy urban taste that you characterize as being about the accumulation um, and, and spectacle of objects, a second system of taste which you call the scholar or literati taste, and then a, a Qing imperial approach to decoration, which is a different kind of taste. So after laying out this larger historical frame within which we're going to situate these more theoretical chapters, you emphasize the importance here of um, of movement, of mesoperception, um, to, to bring in this Masumi that you mentioned a little while ago, and the importance of flux and movement to understanding the kind of work that these objects are doing and the kind of lives that they have. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as um, as an organizing, if it is, you know, if, if I'm if I'm reading this correctly, and I may not be, and that would be useful to know too, but the importance of movement to the kind of work that you're doing, certainly in this part of the book, but also in the project as a whole. Uh, we have a tendency in Western culture to see things as static. Um, we, we we tend not to see their um, the energetics or uh, dynamics of of things of, of of objects, and one of the 
defining aspects of Chinese culture, I think, is that it has historically had an extreme sensitivity to to, to this dimension. Um, for reasons that we all know, it has to do with uh, Chinese cosmology, cosmogony, um, epistemology. So, if only for that reason, one has to pay attention to the the, the, the dimension of movement. But in fact, uh, it even goes beyond the specificity of the Chinese case. I mean, all all objects have. Um, uh, and energetics, no matter where they're produced. And what I found interesting in in uh, Brian Masumi's arguments on affect was that he uh, he found a way of uh, conceptualizing the implicit uh, movement of of things, and the way that that movement is picked up by the body in different modes, whether it's proprioceptive, um, you know, the body moving through space, or uh, visceral, or um, a more uh, tactile um, response to movement um, through through the skin. Uh, so, for me, there's both a general issue here and uh, a specific, uh, a culturally specific one. Um, so, mesoperception, which um, is Masumi's term, is one that I may have, uh, in fact, have manhandled and even misused. Uh, but I'm using it to, uh, to to refer really to bodily thinking, if you like. Um, and the way that it that it the body's various kinds of rhythm. I mean, the the body itself is constantly in movement, and the way that the different kinds of movement that are internal to the body and are internal to our sense of ourselves uh, can uh, resonate with uh, with objects. So I found that useful because it allowed me then to differentiate um, some of the basic um, approaches to decoration which we've always known about you know form the, we've always known that formal pattern was different from you know constructed formal patterns were different from material patterning uh, that one can find for example in the grain in wood grain or the the the, the, the natural pattern of of, of stone uh, but we haven't had a way of talking about that and we haven't had a way of of seeing of being able to conceptualize how Chinese artisans were sensitive to that and exploited it. Let's actually go to that for a moment, because this is, in reading the book and in actually hearing you talk a little bit about that, this is reminding me a lot of work on comparative literature, actually. And recently I spoke with, um, you may or may not be familiar with this book, but Eric Hayo, who's a comparative literature scholar, recently published this book called On Literary Worlds, which does a very, very similar kind of work, even though you wouldn't necessarily relate them for any other reason, to the kind of work that um, that's happening in the book. And that is setting out, the, taking a part of the book and setting out a background um, to understand the, the basic ground of the study, and then introducing a kind of vocabulary for not necessarily, in his case, characterizing objects, but rather characterizing 
forms of literature, not as a kind of essentializing description, but rather to create a vocabulary to then have a basis from which to compare and to create dialogues and relationships that we may not otherwise have the kind of vocabulary to create. It seems to me like a very similar kind of work is being done here in this, um, in this central part two of the book where you're talking about these resources. So as I asked him, I'm, I'm curious to ask you, how did you and what was the process by which you decided on these particular resources um, that you describe in the book? And, and I won't list them for listeners, but rather I'll invite you to talk about any, you know, any individual or set of them that you'd like in the course of our conversation. But what brought you to these particular sets of resources, and was there anything that changed in the way you were thinking about this vocabulary of resources over the course of putting this, um, this project together? Well, the... <laughs> You know, resources is my term. Um, it's not a standard art history term. Um, it's a term that our historians find uh, find strange. Uh, I like it because it is directly connected to the idea of energy, and you can't talk about movement without talking about energy. Um, but the approaches to decoration or the approaches to surface that uh, I've classified here, so to speak, through the, the different chapters, or at least through chapters four to eight. So I'm talking about monochrome, though I modify that as monochrome smoothness. I talk about material patterning, meaning the uh, uh, a patterning that's inherent to a material, naturally inherent to a material, or that can be created through some sort of alchemical process, as in a glaze. I talk about formal patterns, so these are inherently artificial, constructed, repeated patterns. About depiction, which is uh, which uses uh, images that refer to a world, and about uh, inscription, um, where uh, Chinese characters and indeed uh, ca- uh, modes of writing from other languages also are brought into play. And then finally, fictive surface, where uh, a surface substitutes for uh, a surface in a different material. Those, to be honest with you, those approaches to decoration um, are well known. They're, they're, they're well known, and they, the most conservative, the most conventional uh, student of the decorative arts would not be uh, in any way destabilized by those distinctions. Um, we've known about these approaches to decoration for a long time. What's perhaps a little destabilizing is considering them in from the point of view of energy and movement, and considering them as as as, as resources. Um, I well, one thing that I have uh, learned from uh, systems theory and from other or other kinds of theoretical work is that. Um, Practices often have different uh, levels or different orders. And so if those are first-order resources, there are also second-order resources which come into play when uh, 
the first order resources are combined so that if somebody combines a formal pattern with, uh, say, depiction, how do we think about that? And it's my contention that there were uh, principles involved there and that those, rather than calling them principles, I I prefer to call those second-order resources, uh, which govern more diversified surfaces. And I talk about three. I talk about condensation, where... You have an overdetermined surface, a surface that can be read in more than one way or in the direction. It can be read according to different templates, the templates of uh, different resources. And I talk about distribution where the different uh, resources are used in different parts of the surface. And then I talk about a third second-order resource, which is the um, the transformation of the surface in time. And that's something that happens during the life of the object when, when the owner or successive owners um, alter it. Um, the, the, yes, I, I think I should stop there. <laughs> well, one of the things that's really notable about the book and that comes out of um, – it's it's – probably um, an immediate question that comes out of this, listening to this conversation for listeners, um, is that this is a history book, right? So it's about these resources, but it's also a book that situates these very carefully in a particular place at a particular time, even while it aims, I think, more globally to create a kind of vocabulary and a kind of manual for perhaps extending this sort of treatment and this way of thinking with and thinking through objects to other realms of the reader's life and perhaps to other realms of scholarship. But let's talk about the specificity for just a moment. Um, Repeatedly over the course of the book, you're mobilizing not just um, objects themselves, images of objects, but you're mobilizing other kinds of sources as a way in to try to have access to these experiences of and these qualities of energy and movement of objects in the Ming and the Qing. So you bring to bear in the course of the book a lot of fiction. You bring um, sort of depictions and illustrations. There's a lot of different kinds of sources that you're bringing to bear on this. One of the most um, notable of kinds of source that you're citing in the book in order to get at these phenomena is your use of fiction. This is really interesting. It's something that I think methodologically is going to be um, very interesting as a, a kind of um, possible tool for other people who might be also interested in doing this kind of work and are trying to look for ways into accessing these historical phenomena. So could you talk a little bit about um, your use of fiction here as a kind of source for accessing this and if you like to open that up into your experience with other modes of access of these phenomena, you're also, I, I'd love to hear that as well. Well, fiction, um, there's fiction in fiction. A lot of fiction is useless for this um, uh, for this purpose because the, the writer is not especially interested in um, registering uh, modes of experience. So one has, with fiction, one has to be very Selective. There are writers like Cao Jin who are terrific, but there are other writers who who, who are not. Um, and I, so I would tend to see it not so much as uh, a, a question of whether one uses fiction or not, but it's a question of finding writers of various kinds who are attentive to uh, attentive to the experience of objects. 
in another context, it could be the experience of images. It would be the it would be the same principle. Um, fiction has the the particular interest that it's reflexive. Um, it it stages the experience in a way that allows us to uh, see the culture's view of itself in a, in a, in a certain sense. Um, but in that respect, it's it's not terribly different from paintings. Um, paintings that show people holding objects or moving objects or touching objects do something very, very similar to, 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 to fiction. But of course, fiction helps us because uh, the thoughts are articulated in, 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 in a way that is, uh, requires a little, bit, a little bit less interpretation, though it still requires some interpretation. Um, I... But, I actually feel that the book is under-researched. Um, uh, if I have a regret about the book, it's that um, I wish I had given it a deeper... Uh, I, I wish that I had used a, a deeper archive, if you like. Uh, but on the other hand, I needed to finish the book. If you were to do it again, or if you were to have the opportunity to do uh, sort of a second version or another version of this, what would immediately come to mind as being part of that archive, the broader archive that you would have that you would want to bring to bear on the study? Um, I, I'd probably be making more use of BG. Um, I did. I did make some use, and I, I certainly read a lot of BG looking for uh, looking for relevant texts, but I. Um, uh, I needed to spend more more time on that. I also didn't make enough use of uh, plays. Uh, I talk about them. I I mentioned that they're useful, but then I, I don't actually cite and uh, use any areas. Um, uh, I, I think one could one could do rather interesting uh, things with some um, with some dramatic texts, some dramatic areas, which. Uh, Parallel, if if you like the um, the strategies of the decorative arts. Well, let's actually use this as a chance. I'd, I'd like to move into the third part of the book, but before I do that, I just want to uh, just raise an issue that comes up, or or ask you to talk about rather a phenomenon that comes up repeatedly in the second part of the book, and also to some extent in the third part of the book. And this is something that we can broadly, I think, subsume under the rubric of authorship ownership agency. So frequently in this middle part of the book and also at the end, you invoke um, the sort of ways of thinking about authorship of objects, with objects, both in terms of the artisans who are producing them, but also in terms of the owners. And we can, I think, extend this in into the discussion, or this is actually related, I think, to the vocabulary of objects thinking, and we can extend this into a way of thinking about um, agency or perhaps authorship. I don't, I don't know if we want to use that term of objects themselves. So can you speak a little bit, because this is an, a vocabulary that comes up a lot in the book, to the choice of positioning the work that the objects are doing in the book as thinking, as being agents, as sort of, which invites a level consideration of objects on the same term or on the same playing field as the producers and the consumers. What are the stakes for you in using the vocabulary of objects thinking? And can you talk a little bit about that decision or the work that you're hoping that that particular language does in the context of the work of the book? 
Well, if you if you want to, um, as I do, uh, shift our historical analysis toward uh, the experience of objects, then you have to take into account that the objects are not simply passive. We don't confront objects as uh, um, active subjects with the objects simply passively uh, waiting for us to arrive. My view of artworks is that they... Um, they are pre-programmed, if you like, by the, uh, the the people who make them to encourage certain kinds of response. Uh, that doesn't exhaust their meaning, not not at all, because they also um, the, the people who make objects and paintings and artworks and in general also um, unwittingly um, deposit. Uh, other kinds of ideas that, um, in the objects that we can that, that we can excavate. Um, so the idea of thinking with is a, it's my attempt to register that. Um, it's my attempt to register the ways in which the object responds to the questions that we as viewers raise. You look at any object, it's going to stimulate you to ask questions of it. And it will answer those questions um, with other questions. And that's how it, um, it engages you with itself. Um, I call it thinking with because of the the pre-programming dimension of it. The artisans knew very well what they were doing. Um, so th- this has certain ad- advantages. It, it gets away from uh, any uh, worry that this is an animistic theory. It allows us to talk about the agency or the active life of objects without falling into uh, animism, and it also allows us to avoid some other problems that are associated with agency, uh, other theories of agency, where uh, it, it often comes back to social relations. Uh, there's a there's a tendency to um, to explain the agency of the object in, in in terms of social relations, whereas I want to focus on uh, uh, what is actually happening in in, in, in the experience? Uh, I want to focus on on pleasure because I think that pleasure in itself is uh, socially meaningful. Can you actually talk a little bit about that? Because this about is, pleasure, about pleasure. Yes, this is something that also runs through the entirety of the book, and it seems like a very important kind of work that the book is doing is, is um, raising our consciousness about the importance of pleasure, both yeah. scholars, right, but also in the context of what you're talking about. So, pleasure... Well, it's one reason that I wrote the book. I, I'm... You... you um, as an art historian, you, you you become an art historian in part because you love art, and then you you get into this profession. And every time you start to talk about the, the pleasure that you get from objects, there's no real serious conceptually you know conceptually serious way to do so. You're and and for that reason, uh, I mean, the, 
it's not that our historians never do, but they they fall into a celebratory mode when they do it, and that obviously is not good enough. Um, what has happened in modern times is that the, uh, the, the the idea of pleasure has been displaced by the idea of desire. And I'm opposed to that, um, particularly with regard to decoration, because I think decoration has really suffered suffered from that. As, as soon as you think in terms of desire, you're, you, you're really treating the object as a luxury object, as a consumer object. You're looking at it from the point of view of consumption. And you're, you're moving away from the empathetic, empathetic engagement that the, the object uh, calls for, the empathetic engagement with the, the thought process of the artisan and the, the, the material thinking that is embodied in the artifact itself. Um, so we have this discursive problem in, in, in modern cultural uh, analysis that desire has displaced pleasure. Uh, now, pleasure comes back into view as soon as you um, start to think relationally, uh, as soon as you start to move away from a, a taxonomic uh, distanced approach, as soon as you engage with uh, experience. I mean, the only way to, to really to experience these objects is is uh, um, pleasurably. <laughs> now, as we move actually into the, um, the last part of the book, which speaks to a lot of the kinds of things that you've been just talking about just in the past couple of minutes, we move from a focus on object, or the object and object, although that discussion in the first two parts of the book admittedly is always about relationality, but the third part of the book puts it explicitly into the context of relationality, and we move from the object and object to objects, and specifically to objectscapes. Now, there's a lot happening in this part of the book that's really fascinating, and I wish I had three more hours to ask you about, um, about everything that's happening here. There's a really fascinating discussion for example, or, or a thread that uh, follows through these chat that that is that threads through these chapters on the importance of layering and resonance and wrapping at the various levels of an object scape from the individual object to um, the bodies that experience it to the room itself. There is a lot going on here that's really interesting. But what I would like to do is um, kind of open up your discussion of this by asking you a little bit about this notion of an object scape. There's a very, you've already mentioned and invoked the idea of an ecology and talking about your use of the term resources in the second part of the book, which seems really important. The use of the term or the conceptualizing of this set of phenomena in this last part of the book as objectscapes invites also a continuation of this kind of ecological thinking about objects and experience and bodies in this context that's unmistakable. And so can you speak a little bit to uh, your your notion of objectscapes here, the kind of work that that's doing for you in this part of the book, and uh, just, I, I, think, I guess, the broader context within this, um, or, or that this fits into of a kind of ecology of thinking with and through objects? So, uh, the an, an objectscape, a, 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 a landscape of, um, which is really just a landscape of surface scapes, um, 
takes the the idea of the surface scape, which I applied to the object in part two, or in parts one and two, and um, extends it into the overall uh, residential interior. It's essentially the same idea. It's, it's the same idea as the surface scape. And I, I think we... I haven't quite defined what a surface scape is. The, the reason I use that term, the reason why I'm writing a book about surface in, uh, or the reason why I'm focusing a book on decoration on surface is that historically uh, surface has been left out of the analysis of decoration, whereas in my view it's actually what is most fundamental about decoration. Classically, we divide objects uh, according to the, the, the shape of the object, the structure of the object on the one hand, and then we talk about ornament, which is something extra, which is something added, it's uh, adherent uh, on the other. And in the process, uh, surface uh, disappears from view, and as surface disappears from use from view, so does the body. So I wanted to reintroduce that through a, a, a what's basically a topological approach, or you could also say ecological or environmental. And uh, th- so there's no real um, uh, contradiction between the. Um, the the notion of surface scape as applied to a single object and the notion of object scape as applied to the interior of a room. Um, One of the associated uh, issues here is that uh, modern art history tends to treat uh, objects as always as if they were intended to be the object of focused attention. Whereas, in fact, in real life, um, objects are often the the object of peripheral attention. You per, you have a peripheral awareness of the of the things around you. And I'm trying to draw draw out the 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 fact that uh, the surfaces of the objects are um, of the various objects in the residential interior play a great role in this, partly through this idea of wrapping and, 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 and layering. The larger context for this is that I, I feel that uh, art history has been a, a little bit too focused on the social, um, the, the human, the, 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 the human defined as uh, um, the, the individual within society. Uh, I think that we, we, we have to broaden the, our viewfinder, if you like, and, and take into account the ways in which we are uh, we're always in a larger world than, than, than just the social world. There are different uh, uh, aspects to, to, to our experience. So I'm, I'm looking for ways to push art history toward openness and openness to a, a, a larger, oh, what could I call it, a larger um, field of experiences that, that in fact we, we all have on a day-to-day basis. Since you've been re- um, you've coming back to again and again, the context of what you're trying to do in the book within the larger context of the field of art history. Are there any, what I'd actually love to hear is, uh, are there any 
current works, or is there any current work being done in art history now that you're finding particularly exciting? So where do you see, as someone who's very self-conscious about engaging with the directionality of the field as a field, what are the most promising directions or perhaps examples of work that you're seeing coming out of art history right now that you're just particularly excited by? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a big question to throw at. You. Well, it's not. It's not so much that. It's just that um, art history as a discipline is at a, partic- a particular moment, in my view. Uh, it was formed as a modern professional discipline, really, in the middle of the nineteenth century, in the eighteen fifties and sixties, and. My view of the historical development is that we are entering a a period of such radical change that it is really the end of 150 years of modern art history. We're moving into something that is uh, epistemologically quite different. There aren't terribly many people who are currently... Uh, engaged in, 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 in doing this um, or who, who would see the shift in those uh, apocalyptic terms. <laughs> um, so that's thus my embarrassment. But I could point to the work, for example, of my colleague um, Alexander Nagel, who works on uh, Renaissance art uh, in, in in Italy, uh, and his uh, friend and co- collaborator, um, uh, Chris Wood at Yale University, who, who, who does the same, uh, because they, like, uh, like me, they um, are interested in um, shifting attention onto what artworks do, they're interested in identifying operations uh, rather than characterizing artworks in terms of substances or, and, 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 and so on, essences. Uh, uh, now, it's, uh, it, it's, it's certainly true that art history has been moving in this direction for, for, for quite a long time, but it's particularly in the field of modern contemporary art that it's been moving in that direction. And within that field, the ideologies, uh, the sort of lingering ideologies of modernism are so powerfully felt that, to be honest with you, that field is rather trapped at the moment. And uh, the real way forward, I think, is going to come from the, 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 the historical fields of, of art history and from non-Western fields of art history. Well, Jonathan, I've taken up a a huge amount of your time already, and and thank you. I would love to, as I've already mentioned, take up a whole lot more, but I think I will um, let you go in a few minutes. There's a lot about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and in fact, um, most obviously, perhaps, there are two chapters of the book we didn't quite get to. Um, One that I just want to signal for listeners that looks at the atmospherics of surface, that really looks at objectscapes from the perspective of their ephemerality, their movement, their seasonality, their, their, um, the importance of change and movement for understanding objectscapes, not just um, objects and surfacescapes. And also you have a final chapter that looks at the kind of transaction, both at the level of 
thought and emotion, but also at the level of the body that happens when one takes place or takes pleasure in decoration rather than when pleasure was taken in decoration in this particular context that you're focusing on in the book. Now, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, um, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't had a chance yet to engage closely with the book? I'll just mention one thing. Um, you know, part part of an analysis that that uh, focuses on the experience is um, emphasizing how uh, situational experience is, and it's my view that objects take on different characteristics or take on different characters, even uh, according to these different. Situation. So in the book, I talk about the objects as surface scapes. That's a particular relation to the object that, that, that one can have. But I also talk about them as object bodies. Um, and that's a different kind of relation. I could have, and it's a little bit of a regret of mine that in the book I didn't um, talk more about this, I could also have talked about them as object images because in a within a residential interior if you're far enough from an object it becomes um, part of um, it, it can become integrated into a wall and the entire wall for example can take on the character of, of an image so I just want to emphasize the, the situational character of the experience of objects I think we have to get away from the idea that objects are one specific thing. So now that the book is out and um, it's a wonderful book and congratulations on, on this book. I, it's, um, I hope every listener right now is if they haven't already read, read it is going to go out and read the book because it's, it really rewards close attention. Now that the book is out though, what's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? Um, the, I've, for a few years now, I've been working on, um, uh, a history of art history as a discipline. And the reason that I've, uh, I got involved with that is that uh, our current histories of art history are very Eurocentric. Um, so I wanted to uh, do something different. I wanted to draw attention to the, uh, the, the, the wonderful uh, historiographies of art, the tr- traditions of historiography of art and other parts of the world, uh, particularly China, but not not only China. And so I've been writing a book for several years now that has a provisional title, um, Historical Writing on Art, uh, A Cross-Cultural History. And it actually begins in the ancient Near East. Hmm. We don't get to Vasari and... um, Vasari's Lives of the Artists, which is the usual starting point, until I think chapter four. <laughs> Great. Well, and my, I usually, that's usually my last question, but um, given the nature of our conversation and some of the things that you said, I have a new last question for you. And that is, um, it's, you're really clear in this book about um, acknowledging and integrating 
resources from outside art history, like Misumi's work, for example, that have been really formative in how you're thinking about these kinds of phenomena. Are there any, since the book has been out, since you've done work for this book, are there any other major points of inspiration, kind of analogous to the kind of inspiring um, influence that Misumi's work had on this book that you're currently excited about? Sort of what, what non-art history is exciting you right now? Sure, sure. I've recently come across the work, uh, I knew the name, but I hadn't engaged with it, the work of uh, Gabriel Simondon, who was writing uh, from the late 1950s onwards on technological objects and who developed uh, late in his life the idea of a techno-aesthetics. Um, now, I wish I had known about Simondon's, object, uh, Simondon's theories when I, when I wrote this book. Um, he he's a pioneer of uh, relational thinking. He was uh, influential on Gilles Deleuze, um, and but but he, he's so specific. You know, it, it, uh, these days everybody knows the the work of Bruno Latour, but Latour behind Latour uh, stands uh, Simondon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would encourage uh, uh, I would encourage readers to come to terms with his work. There's a, a marvelous introduction to his work written by uh, Muriel uh, Coombs or, or Coombes, C O O M B E S. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. It's really been a pleasure. Congratulations on the book, and best of luck with the research to come. And thank you for making the time. And thank you for your generosity. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.